Welcome to another episode of the History of Eye Care. Before we get started, let's hear a special message from Dr. David Chang about the incredible work being done by Orbis and their CyberSight initiative. Well, we all know that the solution to global blindness is building local capacity, training doctors and nurses in their respective country to do uh, things that we take for granted. That's always been a challenge because it would have required one of us to travel to that country. And Orbis has always been an innovator on how to do this at scale. It started with the unique idea of putting people in a flying eye hospital and transporting both the surgeons and the nursing staff, and then going to multiple places all in one trip. And that really revolutionized things. They've now gone a step beyond on that power and that uh, tradition of innovation with CyberSight. CyberSight is so exciting because not only can uh, people, when they have about 60,000 people around the world now learning online and watching videos and tutorials, but CyberSight can link in real time trainers in a different country with someone locally. You can even monitor their surgery by seeing the same view through the microscope. And now with the addition of AI and some of the projects with 3D virtual reality simulators, I think Orbis is gonna take training to a next level. Welcome to the History of Eye Care, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the evolution of modern eye care. We'll hear the stories of today's thought leaders, innovators, and legends. By exploring the past, we can better shape the future. From anterior segment and refractive surgery to retina, plastics, and glaucoma, no part of eye care's rich history will be left in the dark. Here's your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, an eye surgeon and curious historian who is ready to uncover the landmark moments and untold stories that have revolutionized eye care. Let's dive in. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the History of Eye Care. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, and I'm excited to guide you on another journey through the history of our field. Today, I'm joined in person at ACOS in Deer Valley by Dr. Robert Maloney, a true force in the realm of cataract and refractive surgery, as well as in advancing patient care. He holds numerous patents and has served as chief medical officer and on the boards of multiple companies. Dr. Maloney has been a pivotal figure in the advancement of LASIK. He's been an early adopter and has always been willing to educate others on the complexities of refractive surgery. He's trained over 1,000 surgeons in the use of the eczema laser, and he's been a part of over 20 different FDA clinical trials. He currently serves as the director of the Maloney Shami Vision Institute in Los Angeles, and he's got an incredible educational background that spans from Harvard to Oxford, Cambridge, UCLA, Wilmer, and notably Emory. Dr. Maloney brings a wealth of knowledge and experience to the table. So Robert, welcome. Tell us about how you got into ophthalmology. I thought I was going to be a neurologist when I was in med school. I became a doctor because my father was a surgeon. He was a cardiothoracic surgeon and a pioneer of that field. And I wanted to be like him. It's a stupid way to choose a career. I mean, I don't recommend it, but that's how I chose a career. And it turned out, it worked out great for me. I got lucky, but I knew I didn't want to be a surgeon because he was never home. And I knew I wanted to see my kids growing up and I didn't want to live the kind of life he had. And he was in the hospital hours. So, so for me, I knew I wanted to be a doctor, but I was sure I didn't want to be a surgeon. I was absolutely sure. So I was going to be a neurologist because I'm very interested in pathophysiology and biology and complex problems and neurology was as complex as it got until the CT scanner was invented, which I remember a neurologist looking at going, oh my God, I, they don't even need me anymore. But then I just got lucky. So we were, had our assigned ophthalmology rotation in med school. 
And I remember looking at the iris through a slit lamp going, oh, my God, this is the most interesting, beautiful structure I've ever seen in medicine. And that kind of prompted me to pay attention. So I learned how to refract as a medical student. I thought, this is cool. But that was it. I mean, I, I was done. I wasn't going any further. But then my moment of becoming an ophthalmologist uh, came when I was a junior medical student. I was on the medicine rotation at the VA hospital in San Francisco as a third-year resident. And the fourth-year, re- I mean, as a third-year medical student, the fourth-year medical student was going into ophthalmology. And I was three in the morning. I was admitting a veteran through the emergency room. I had jumped on the workup. I was writing it up. I was exhausted sitting at the nursing station. And this fourth-year medical student, who was a night owl, came trotting by, bright and cheery, and said, what are you doing? And I'm a morning person, so I grumped. I was like, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm admitting that vet from the emergency room, and I finished, and I'm trying to get it written up so I can get some sleep. You know, he goes, whoa, you having fun? And I said, no, I'm not having fun. I want to go to bed. And he goes, think about ophthalmology. <laughs> My next answer to him was, why would anyone want to prescribe glasses? That sounds boring. And he says, no, 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 it's surgery. It's surgery of the eye. It's really cool. It's all microsurgery. He piqued my interest. We spent 15, 20 minutes talking about it. At the end of 20 minutes, I was mostly sold. I went and then signed up for a third-year rotation in ophthalmology. I loved it. I went and watched Bob Sinsky, the very famous cataract surgeon in LA, do cataract surgery. I watched him do 15 phacos by noon, which at the time was unheard of. And he was beautiful. It was incredible what he could do. And I was sold. I was an ophthalmologist. So that fourth-year medical student is Dan Schwartz, who was one of the founders, primary founders of our ex-site. Wow who has had a distinguished career at UC San Francisco. He's made a number of inventions, including inventing OCT angiography. And he is also one of my closest friends. And so that 20-minute conversation in the middle of the night turned into not only a career, but a great friendship. And now you're having fun. Now when someone asks you, are you having fun? The answer I am is. having fun. I can't believe <laughs> that this profession is so cool. That's I awesome feel story. really sad for every other profession in medicine. <laughs> they all got gypped. Yep. So you had mentioned that when you first saw cataract surgery, that it was FACO. Do you remember around what year that was? Yes, it was 1984. I first saw FACO in 1984 before I'd ever seen extra cap. But then when I did my ophthalmology rotation, I discovered that at UCSF, everybody was doing extra caps. Right. And in fact, most of the country is doing extra caps. When I got to residency at Wilmer in 1986, FACO was relatively rare. Most of the surgeries were done were extra caps. That's what I learned initially. In fact, there was even one surgeon at, at Wilmer Institute who was still doing extra caps with loops who had not yet adopted wow. an operating microscope. I'm dating myself, all right? No, no. Is it, this is the history. We're getting yeah. the history. Even with that context to think that in early 80s, even before other people had switched over from doing extra caps, they was doing 15 FACOs before lunch. Well, it... It's a perfect example of how the better procedure wins. So Bob Sinsky, who's the inventor of the Sinsky lens in the Sinsky hook, was one of the real pioneers of FACO. He had learned it from Charles Kalman, the inventor. And one of the, the first group that included Kratz, included Masako, included him, included 10 or 15 other doctors around the country. The procedure was difficult then. It was hard to do. It was easy to break capsule. The machines weren't very good. There was too much power, too much energy. 
Nothing was adjustable. And so you had to be a really gifted surgeon to get through it. A lot of surgeons tried and failed and went back to extra cap. There was a group of pioneers who pushed the procedure forward and became famous. And the reality is we all know the recovery of FACO is amazing. The recovery from extra cap is six weeks. And so these surgeons took away everybody else's cataract volume because imagine their patients the next day seeing great and all their friends are having poor vision for six weeks. Yeah. And so it was fantastic. It's just what LASIK did to PRK surgeons. Those of us who could do LASIK in the early days took away the refractive practice of people who couldn't. The better procedure wins. It just so happened a lot of these pioneers in FACO happened to be in Los Angeles. So Sinsky was a pioneer. He was there. Tomazaku, who invented the first foldable lens, was there. It used to be we did FACO with a three-millimeter incision, then ex- expanded to six millimeters to put in an IOL. Well, what a waste that is. Right. Tomazaku invented a, it was called the Mazako Taco, a foldable lens. Dick Kratz was there, who was one of the pioneers. And a little bit further south was Bill Maloney, who was a pioneer of FACO. He invented the Maloney Keratometer. And no relation, but he offered me a first job, actually which I turned down, but I think he was just trying to save on stationery. But I had met Bill Maloney while I was still a first-year resident because I'd gone down to San Diego with a friend to go swimming on the beach. He had a house on the beach and a Hobie cat. And we met him, and we asked if he would borrow his Hobie cat, and he said, sure. And we went sailing off the beach in his Hobie cat and flipped it over and couldn't get it back up. We finally got it back up. So I almost sunk the Hobie cat of one of the pioneers in my field who then decided if I could get that Hobie cat up, it was probably appropriate to join his practice. So there was an incredible amount of innovation in the early days of FACO, similar to the kind of innovation that happened in refractive surgery. You had mentioned LASIK earlier. You're very well known as a refractive surgeon and someone who's really been a pioneer in advancing refractive surgery for patients. Can you tell me about your journey and how you got involved with refractive surgery? Yeah, I grew up, I got glasses when I was 12, and that's when my journey started. I hated my glasses. I got contact lenses as soon as I could, first hard, then soft, the original soft lenses. And I just dreamed of being able to see well. And part of why I went into ophthalmology, apart from having Dr. Dan Schwartz, I think it was really cool, is I loved optics and physics, and I kind of wanted to find a solution to my own problem. And refractive surgery, I didn't even know it existed when I went into ophthalmology. Actually, I knew about RK. But when I matched, I mean, it was just this vague desire to be free of my glasses. So my journey started when I was a resident. I started doing research in RK at Wilmer. And what I was doing is getting cadaver eyes and looking at the influence of intraocular pressure on the refractive effect and a corneal hydration on the refractive effect. And nobody at Wilmer was doing this research. So I set up a little mini lab in the basement in a closet off the residence room and I set up my experimental apparatus and was doing experiments and published a paper in, I think it was AJO, on the impact of these factors on radiokeratonomy. So I was interested from the get-go, but I met with a fair amount of hostility at Wilmer because it's a very traditional place. They thought refractive surgery was butchery. It, they couldn't understand how if a person could see perfectly well in glasses and contacts, why would you cut their eye. I mean, that would, that just seemed an act of extraordinary irresponsibility to them. Whereas for me, it was a dream to be able to cut an eye in my eye and see well, you know. Okay. In fact, I got up around cadaver eyes and I'd send them off to Dick Green, the pathologist, very famous pathologist, a real pioneer in American pathology, because it was required. Every piece of human tissue had to go to the pathology lab. 
and I'd get a formal pathology report on each of the eyes I did. I'd be cutting eye after eye after eye. And the report, I remember one came back and said, normal human globe, normal human cornea, except for eight radial incisions from paracentral to limbus. And then there was a period, and then why anyone would do this to a human cornea is beyond this pathologist. Wow. Yeah, it was very hot. Strong words. Very strong words. Wow. Yeah. This is what I want to do. I pushed forward, and just about then, the eczema laser was getting invented. And so when it came time to choose a fellowship, I chose to go to Emory and work with George Waring, Doyle Stelting, and Lou Wilson at the time, but really to work with George. And George has passed away, and it's still hard for me. He was a real mentor and friend, dear friend. So I went to work with George, and uh, he was such an inspiration. And, you know, he was doing the original trials of the Summit Eczema Laser, the original PRK trials in the United States of the Summit Eczema Laser. So I went in the research lab for a year and worked on two things. I worked on topography, which had just been invented by a company called Computed Anatomy. And so we had the first topographer in the United States, or one of the first. Maybe Steve Kleiss had the first, because he was working very close to the company. We had one of the first. And so I was doing research in topography, trying to figure out, what this is? What does it mean? How do you use it? Can you, what can you detect with it? Can you detect keratoconus with this? Hmm, what does a cornea look like after you flattened it? So we were asking all these very basic questions. And at the same time, I was working in the lab doing eczema lasers in rabbits. And I was, for me, it was really exciting to be in at the foundational level of eczema laser. And we discovered a bunch of things. We discovered that too much airflow causes corneas to dry out and you get corneal haze. We discovered some very basic things. Because of my research in topography, I got invited by Yanni Polycarus, the inventor of LASIK. I got invited to go to Crete for a meeting to discuss corneal topography. I was only a fellow. Wow. I was so excited. In fact, I was funded by Joe Wakiel, who was involved in a competing topography system at that point. So I flew to Crete, which for me was unbelievable to be invited somewhere and not have to pay for it myself. Yeah. <laughs> this is why we all lecture, right? right? <laughs> and I gave my lectures on topography. And then uh, the next morning, Yanni Polikara says to me, he goes, hey, Robert, I want to show you something. So he takes me down to the basement of his institute. He showed me three patients. He goes, yesterday, they were myopes between minus three and minus six diopters. And I want you to just look at the cornea and see if you see anything. And I looked at the cornea and the corneas looked totally normal to me. He'd done LASIK on all three of them. He then explained to me what he'd done, and then I looked again. I could see the outline of the flap where the epithelium had already healed, and I went, I was, it was thunderstruck. It was like somebody just hit me between the forehead with a two-by-four, and it was clear to me this was the way to go, not PRK, not radiocautonomy, that LASIK was the way to go. And it was that chance encounter in the basement with three patients of the inventor of LASIK, Yanni Plickers, that catapulted me on my career. That's incredible. That's, that's an incredible story. Yeah. We plan so much in our lives. I do anyway, and you probably do too. We plan, we scheme, we think, we hope, we write things down, we foresee. You know, We do all these things to control our future. And really, all the important things in my life have been totally random. Running in the Dan Schwartz at 3 a.m. on the medicine rotation at the VA hospital, seeing running, basically seeing Yanni Polycarus the day after he had done three LASIK cases. It's crazy how little control we have over our lives. 
That's true. It's truly amazing. So the PERC study is a famous study with ERK and looking at the flattening and kind of one of the reasons we, we went away from ERK amongst others. Was that being done? Because that was performed at Emory. Was that being done around the time when you were there? Yeah. So what George was initially best known for, George Waring, was the PERC study. It stands for Prospective Evaluation of Radial Keratotomy. It was an academy-sponsored study, multi-center study, in which they prospectively evaluated radial keratotomy. Before the PERC study, the Radio keratotomy had been done by people that the powers that be in the academy considered shady people. They considered it was like almost the Wilmer attitude, the idea that this is an operation that good surgeons and ethical surgeons wouldn't do. And so people doing it were tend to be private practice people who had gone to Russia to learn the procedure from Dr. Fyodorov and had um, come back and brought it to the United States. And like any new procedure, Sometimes there were, you know, in the early days, the limits were pushed. Right. You know, instead of four incision or eight incisions, some people did 32 incisions. You know, in retrospect, it was, it was a mistake, but these people were castigated as wild cowboys. So George came along and said, look, let's study this instead of making judgments about it. So George put this study together, and his leadership in refractive surgery is really what drew me to him, and that was a, a sign of that. Turns out that study was very problematic for the academy because as the academy was putting this together, they basically took the position that no one else can do radiokeratotomy except the people in the study. And so the academy was sued for restraint of trade, sued for antitrust violations for attempting to restrict who could do radiokeratotomy. I don't remember the outcome. I don't think it went to trial. I think there was a settlement, but that allowed the study to go on and the people in private practice kept doing it. And in fact, ironically, and I always felt slightly guilty about this, but I didn't hide it from George, I kept making less money everywhere I went. So when I was an intern, I was living in California and paid by the University of California. I was UCLA. I got paid recently. Well, I went to Baltimore. I got a cut in pay for the next three years. And then my fellowship paid me even less. And so, and my parents weren't supporting. I was getting poorer and poorer. And uh, so I started moonlighting. And uh, when I wasn't on call, I'd moonlight. And I found a guy in rural Georgia who needed help on weekends. So I go down there on Saturdays. I make a ridiculous amount of money from my point of view. It was nothing for him. Just seeing patients. Well, it turns out this guy is one of the people who had sued George Waring for restraining trade. But, you know, I needed the money and George didn't object. But there was that kind of weird little thing. Then Fyodor's daughter came to the U.S. and stayed with him. And so I actually took her out on a date at his request. And so we had just a pleasant evening, and I dropped her off not too late. I was very proper. But then I went to Russia, which George arranged for me at the end of my fellowship, and I visited Fyodorov in Russia. And that was fun because his daughter then reciprocated and took me out for a date in Moscow, which was a lot of fun. Fyodorov was an extraordinary guy. He was the richest man in Russia. He had five hospitals. And Russia, the government of Russia, the Soviet Union at the time, was paying $12 a patient for glasses. There was a socialized system. Nobody paid for anything. But he could, Fyodorov could do RK for $6 a patient. So he saved the government a lot of money on glasses. So he built this gigantic series of institutes funded by the government. And he was wealthy enough. He ran for the Duma, the Russian parliament, mm-hmm. won a seat, and then had a very suspicious helicopter crash later, which killed him. And most people seem to think he was executed. Wow. But, but, so I go to watch him do surgery. He doesn't do surgery. What he does is supervise, or he did supervise. So you go into his office, a big office, 
and a big desk, big desk. And then you sit across from him, and he's sitting there talking to you across this desk. And just to his side here is a bank of 18 TV monitors, old black and white monitors. Each monitor is directed into one of 18 operating rooms with an operating microscope in each of those operating rooms. And as he's chatting with you, he's glancing at the 18 operating rooms, and all of a sudden he'll stop, push a button, and speak to the surgeon in a particular operating room who's wearing headsets, and he barks at him to correct something they're not doing right, and then he goes back and talking to you. So he was simultaneously talking to me and monitoring 18 operating rooms at the same time. He was, he was an amazingly capable man. Wow. He owned a casino. And so he took me to the casino at the end of the day, went to the casino. And unbeknownst to me, he'd arranged for a news crew to come interview me as the famous American surgeon. Well, I had just finished my fellowship. I mean, <laughs> but, but an American visiting Russia was a rare thing then, right? And uh, so he's got this news crew, but they don't speak English. And I don't speak Russian. And so we need a translator. So Fyodorov translates for me. And so the news crew says, you know, I can't even tell you, whatever it sounds to me, in, to Fyodorov. Fyodorov translates to me and he'll say, welcome to Moscow. Why did you come to Moscow? And I'm thinking, well, he's going to translate. So I said, well, I came to visit the very famous Professor Fyodorov, who is one of the world's greatest pioneers in eye surgery to learn from him. And so then he translates over we'll back, and then another question comes back, and how well-known is Dr. Fyodorov outside of Russia? Oh, I'm thinking, you know, look, I know where my bread is buttered. <laughs> Dr. Fyodorov is probably the most famous eye surgeon in the entire world. And then he translated. And the interview went on like this, with him translating me complimenting him. <laughs> but it worked fine. I mean, we had a, we had a wonderful time, and then I uh, was followed by KGB the whole time. Really? Yeah. Um, wow. And then uh, came back. That was amazing. Uh, George had set up when I finished my fellowship to visit Theo Seiler in Germany, who really was the original pioneer of the eczema laser. So I spent a few weeks with Theo. We did a research project together. He is brilliant and a friend to this day and an extraordinary person. Then I visited a very famous doctor who did osteodontokeratoprosthesis, which seemed to be the only reasonable way to do it. I learned from him. I visited Khalil Hanna, who was an early pioneer of eczema laser in Europe. I went to Germany and visited Armin Schar in Bochum, who was one of the pioneers of astigmatic keratotomy at the time. I visited Jörg Krumeich in Germany, who was the one who invented keratomalosis, essentially. Uh, the BKS keratome was Bericare Krumeich Schwinger uh, keratome. So I visited him and learned from him. And he loaned me his Porsche to drive to... Uh, a nearby town, which I did on the Autobahn. I thought I was going 100 miles an hour, which seemed fast to me. The next day, I was driving with him at 160 miles an hour, passing cars that looked like they were stationary and just seeing my life flash before my eyes. York had a wedding ring, a beautiful, solid gold band. I said, oh, he, I don't know, I commented on his ring, and he pulled off and showed me it was completely lined with diamonds on the inside that were invisible. Anyone, anyone else? Do, I don't know. All the diamonds are on this side. I've never seen a ring like it reminded me of that Paul Simon song, Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes. Yep. So I spent three months traveling around the world, learning from the pioneers in the world. And then I spent a, a month in Southeast Asia doing, or not that, South Pacific doing volunteer cataract surgery. And that was a seminal experience in my life, uh, the ability to work in another country and kind of give back. 
Yeah. I had uh, went to the Marshall Islands and with a friend of mine, Tony Capone, who's a very famous pediatric retinal surgeon in Detroit now. He and I went there to do cataract surgery because they had no cataract surgeon in the whole country. They had an eye, ear, nose, and throat surgeon from the Philippines. That specialty still existed in the Philippines who had tried cataract surgery and just failed. And it had been a mess. So we went there to do cataract surgery and we showed up in this tropical paradise. We really, it was really philanthropic tourism because we wanted to have fun and do good. Like, so we showed up our first day of work and, you know, there's 50 people there, 30 people there who need cataract surgery. And we started doing slap exams. We quickly realized it was a waste of time. So we just walked down the, the row of people with a flashlight and anybody with a white pupil got cataract surgery and anybody whose pupil wasn't white, we sent home. So we started doing cataract surgery. We do each of us do extra caps at the time. There's no FACO. So each of us do eight, 10 extra caps a day in two operating rooms. And so we did 20 cases the first day and we came back and saw the post-ops and they were doing fine. And we went back to look at the line and there's now 50 people in line. And we did the same thing again. And the next day there was 100 people in line. And the next day there was 200 people in line. And what was happening is people were coming from all of the outlying islands by boat. People were blind to have cataract surgery, and they were arriving as the news got out there were surgeons there. Wow. And we initially started scheduling everybody. Okay, you're at 8.15, you're at 8.30, you're at 8.45. And, and then after a while, we realized that that was our Western concept of time. And so basically what we did is we told everybody, we told everybody with a non-leukocoria to go home. And in leukocoria, we said, you know, come and we'll do your surgery. And they just show up and we do as many as we could. And anybody we hadn't done, we just said, come tomorrow. And then we did the same thing over and over for two weeks. And what we realized after about three days is that we were never going to finish. We were never going to get through it. So we decided we were going to train this Filipino ironosurgeon how to do cataract surgery. So one of us did surgery as fast as we could and the other one trained. And this guy, I mean, he's a very capable surgeon. His name's Philippe Pastoral. A very capable surgeon, very good with his hands. He's just never been trained. So by the end of our two weeks, he was a good cataract surgeon. And so we left. And then two years later, I'm at UCLA, started my career at UCLA at the Jules Stein Institute. One of the residents wanted to do a time abroad. And he asked me about it. And I said, you got to go do this. So the Marshall Institute said, you got to do it. You will never see cataracts like this in your life. I said, look, don't bother with slump exam. Walk down the hallway with a pen light, and if they have leukocoria, do surgery. Otherwise, don't. Don't worry about scheduling. Just do as many as you can. I sent him with a whole package of IOLs, and I got it donated, and uh, he went. And three weeks later, he came back, and I said, how was it? He goes, oh, it was good. I said, wasn't that amazing? He goes, yeah. I said, well, those cataracts, have you ever seen cataracts like that in your life? And he goes, Robert, he goes, there were no cataracts left. Dr. Pastorell had done them all. I did diabetic retinopathy laser treatments for three weeks. Wow. So for me, that's actually the thing in my career I'm most proud of is Tony and I cured cataract blindness in an entire nation. That's incredible. Just by teaching one guy how to do cataract surgery. Give a man a fish versus teach a man to fish. Yes, exactly. That's incredible. And the, the, in a way, the sad thing is, as Philip, poor Philip, uh, his family was in the Philippines. He was essentially working in Marshall Islands because he could get a job there. I mean, it's, you have to make ends meet, right? Then he actually managed to get to immigrate to the United States. So he came to the United States with family. It was wonderful for him. He's together with his family. 
but he couldn't work as a surgeon. He had to work as an ophthalmic tech, which is a waste of the talents of a very gifted man. And it was it made me sad for the Marshall Islands because they lost a very gifted surgeon. But I was really happy for him. And he, he not me, cured cataract blindness in an entire country. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so that's how my career started. It was a pretty exciting start. So my journey in refractive start, surgery started with my own myopia, research in radiocaritotomy, a visit to Yanni Polycris, laser PRK research. Then I arrived at Julestein Institute and as a refractive and cornea surgeon, but with mm-hmm. interest in refractive. And um, the research to prevent blindness bought me an eczema laser. You know, they had submitted a grant and we got an eczema laser for research. I participated in the original trials of LASIK in the United States, the original FDA trials. At the time, we called it laser keratomalusis. Mm-hmm. And the way it was originally conceived as invented by Polycris is you, initially, you cut the flap entirely off. You actually created a body. Free cap. A free cap, yeah. And you would then laser, you'd flip it over and laser the backside of the cap. The cap was 300 microns thick. You'd laser the backside of the cap and then put it back on with sutures. In fact, with interrupted sutures and then a, a, a you know 16-byte running suture. So my very first case of what became LASIK it was part of the FDA trial. We had FDA approval. Patient comes in. His name is, call him Tom. I'm trying to recruit for this trial. And he's a minus 12 myo. And he says, you know, he wants RK because that's all we could do at the time. I said, you know, it won't work for you. I said, but I have something else. I mean, anybody who recruits for trials has this experience. Right. I said, well, I have something else for you. I have this trial we're doing of a new procedure. He goes, oh, well, what is that? I said, it's called laser in situ keratomalysis. He goes, yeah. He, said, I, he says, well, what do you do? He says, well, what I do is I cut off the front part of your cornea, <clears throat> flip it upside down, laser it, put it back on, and sew it on with a bunch of stitches. He goes, oh, have you ever done it before? I just took a deep breath and said, no. And he goes, okay, I'll do it. That was my first patient. The surgery went fine. But so it turns out the lasers in the clinic and the operating rooms in the operating room and to slice somebody's cornea off, you, you're at the time you weren't doing it in the clinic. So we take it in the operating room, put it under general anesthesia. I take a BKS microkeratome that Krumike had invented, run it across the eye with a vibrating blade, shave off 300 micron thick section of his entire cornea, put it in a special holding case to keep it sterile, close it, run over to the clinic, put this under the laser, open it up, fire the laser to correct minus 12 myop, put the cap back on, run back to the operating room, regown, re-scrub, take this out of the container, put it on his eye, eight interrupted sutures and a 16-byte running, Wow! and woke him up from general anesthesia and sent him home. That's my first LASIK case. He did great. I saw him 10 years later in my office. He was still about 20, 30, happy he'd done it. He did great. And so uh, so that's how it all started. And then people dispute who invented LASIK. The two people with really good claim are uh, Yanni Plickers and Lucio Barato in Milan, Italy, and both seem to have invented it about simultaneously. I happened to hook up with, with Yanni Plickers, and so he's the one who introduced me to it. It's not clear to me who invented LASIK flaps, Gustavo Tamoyo in Bogota, Colombia has a, a claim to that. 
But that was a huge advance. So instead of cutting the cornea off and lasering the backside of the cap, we left it attached by a hinge and then lasered the bed. And that was a procedure we started doing after our first two or three in the FDA trial with a free cap. We then started flipping to the flap because of of that discovery. And that was obviously a huge improvement. So for me personally, I was sort of a committed user of LASIK long before uh, long before it was FDA approved, the lasers were FDA approved. I mean, uh, I also did the FDA trials for PRK, various PRK indications post-refractive, for example, in the United States. And then in 1995, the Exmer laser got FDA approved. There were two competing at the time, Visex and Summit. I had a Summit laser. It got approved first. And I had the only Summit laser in Los Angeles, I think in the whole county. And what that did is give me a huge advantage in building a practice over everybody else. These kind of unfortunate people at the physics laser couldn't use their laser. And so when the news broke about this approval and it was on the news everywhere, I was essentially the only person they could come see. And I, I was still at the UCLA at the time, and I developed really a, a huge refractive, laser refractive practice, initially PRK and LASIK combined and then LASIK only. And other lasers came online roughly six, nine months later, as the physics laser was approved, I still had a substantial lead. And people all started doing PRK. I was already transitioning to LASIK. And so I developed a really one of the largest laser refractive practices in the country. In fact, in the first quarter of 1996, I bought more of the laser cards than anybody in the country. Let's talk about that for a second. The click fees were kind of invented with LASIK. And that kind of came with the Exmer lasers. It was this early Netflix model before the Netflix model. The subscription fee was these cards. I know. We all hated it. It just did not seem fair that we had to buy the laser and then pay a click fee. It was really uh, the laser companies thought this up. It was probably David Muller who was the president of, of Summit who thought this up, would be my guess. And uh, Vizex quickly adopted it. Initially, the click fee was $100 a case. And then there was some that really, really, I think, was restraint of trade, the Vizex and Summit sued each other because Vizex had some patents, Summit had some patents, and they were suing for use, suing each other for using each other's patents. And then they came up with this brilliant solution, which is create a third company they called Pillar Point Partners. They both put all their patents in it, and they both licensed it from Pillar Point Partners. And so they would charge us a click fee and then transfer that to Pillar Point Partners as a license fee for the intellectual property. And then they divided the profits out of Pillar Point Partners, which I'm guessing was based in Ireland. And so it was a way of basically setting the fee. There was no competition in fees anymore. And eventually the FTC got after them and the Pillar Point Partners partners dissolved. But we were stuck. Initially it was $100, then they raised it to $250. And we all hated it, but the reality was if we're charging $2,500 for LASIK, it was still a really good deal for us. And it was really good for the patients. Yeah. And we, now we have click fees and, and other things like Femto and <laughs> even Aura. Click fees. You know? We're lucky we don't play click fees on a slip. <laughs> it's true. I mean, they're just rapacious <laughs> sometimes, aren't they? If you want to turn that, turn that dial and turn that light on, you got to pay a click fee, you know? And you mentioned patents. So you're someone who has a fair number of patents with your name on it. Do you want, do you want to talk about any of the patents that you have? Well, early in my career, I started a, a topography company. We developed a small handheld topographer to replace these big topographers we had in our office. 
I initially got patents because uh, a friend and I developed a small handheld cornell topographer. Really cool thing. And it worked reasonably well, but it wasn't great. But there really was not much market for us and ended up dying. So I got a few patents from that. And then uh, one of the kind of seminal events from my life involved uh, Dan Schwartz again. The person who originally got me into ophthalmology came to me and said, look, I've got this idea for an adjustable lens. It can be adjusted by shining a light on it. This guy at Caltech, Bob Grubbs, figured out a way to do this with polymer. He's got a Nobel Prize. He's brilliant. Actually, he didn't have a Nobel Prize at that time, but he's brilliant. But we can't get anybody interested in this. And uh, they've been trying to get people interested, trying to get some funding. And he explained to me, I was, it was, again, I'd been hit in the forehead with a two-by-four. I was like, this is incredible. I love this. And so I kind of helped kind of get things started there. I helped Bob Grubbs and Dan Schwartz with initial fundraising. We founded the company together. And so I was one of the, one of the co-founders of the company that became our site. And then I was interested in technology as chief medical officer for many years. I came up with some technological improvements. So I have a couple of patents from that as well. And I was CEO of the company, interim CEO, for a period of about a year. And then went back to being CMO. I continued practicing at the time, but helped the company move forward. And then, uh, you know, the rest is history. Now, you can hardly present in a meeting unless you are using light adjustable lens. <laughs> I mean, if you're not using the LAL now, it's almost like you're an extra cap surgeon right now. <laughs> yeah, it's truly amazing. I mean, just the innovation that you've been involved with. You've had a lot of mentors along the way. George Wayne III was, was one of those. And you, you mentioned them earlier. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about George? George is incredible. You know, he passed away a few years ago, but he is one of the most vibrant people I ever met. And after he passed away, I was talking to people. I, I gave a couple of eulogies for him. I was talking to people about their experience with George. And what I heard over and over from people was, from young people and older, is that when I was young, George encouraged me. I was giving a poster to and he came by and talked to him about it and said it was great work and I should do more of it. I gave a paper, he came up and wanted to talk to me about it and told me how great it was. And he was great at kind of encouraging and mentoring young people, and I was one of the beneficiaries of that. He also loved new ideas. He was completely open to new ideas. He wasn't judgmental. He was always excited. And he made doing research and innovation in refractive surgery exciting. And I kind of caught that fever from him. When I went to Emory after my fellowship, I had really not a good experience in Wilmer. For me, it felt like a very hostile environment. But I got to, and I was convinced I did not want to go into academics. But I got to Emory and found an environment that was warm and inviting and exciting and fell in love with academics all over again. And so I left from Emory to go to UCLA, where I was in in academics for, for seven years. So I credit George with not only inspiring me, not only motivating me, not only introducing me to all kinds of new ideas and concepts, not only opening doors for me, but also helping me love academics. And so he very much catapulted me on an academic career, which in my mind continued even after I left the university. I continued to write and publish and do FDA trials. So he was a really seminal figure in my professional life. Are there any other mentors that helped guide you along this incredible journey that you've been on? I have professional advisors, but I would say I don't have another professional mentor who affected me in the way George did. You know, I have lots of personal mentors. Uh, no, not even lots, but I have personal mentors. Sure. Um, 
One is Charlie Munger, the very famous uh, Berkshire Hathaway investor, you know, Warren Buffett's uh, partner. I met him when I was a child because he was a friend of my father's. And he took me under his wing and has been an advisor my whole life and uh, a role model, really. He's an incredibly ethical person. He makes decisions on what's right. And then you figure out later whether it's costly or not. You always kind of do the right thing first and then try and do the thing that makes money. So he's really kind of helped guide me in professional ethics to really do the right thing all the time. And so I've had a few personal mentors that have made a real difference in my life. But for me, George was my mentor. So what do you feel is your greatest contribution to our field? I didn't invent LASIK. Other people did. I didn't figure out how to make a cap. Other people did. I see my contribution to our field as being, I helped teach people how to do, I helped figure out and teach people how to do procedures safely. And I was able to do that because I was one of the few people in the university who had a very large practice. You know, most university people didn't do a lot of surgery, and most private practice people didn't publish very much. And in particular, people did not want to publish their complications. People don't like doing it. One of the things that makes ACOS unique is people talk about their complications, but most people don't like it. In the, from the beginning of my career, I published all my complications. And I didn't take it as a sign of weakness on my part. I took it as an opportunity to say, here's what can happen. Here's how you avoid these. So I published a series of papers. I published the original description of DLK and how do you prevent it. I published the original description of central toxic keratopathy, how to prevent it. I published the original descriptions of kind of a systematic description of epithelial growth. You know, there's, there was case reports before, but a systematic description of epithelial growth. I published papers just looking at a thousand eyes and what the complications were, how to manage flat complications places. I published work on PRK as well. So I help teach people how to do laser refractive surgery safely. And so to me, when I look at my contribution to the field, it's helping people do surgery safely, which makes it something we can do for almost everyone. Uh, there were other people doing publishing as well. Steve Slade was an early publisher of complications and how to do LASIK safely and did a lot of teaching. So he was a really important people. And there were a lot of other really important people. Without those descriptions of DLK and flapping growth and, you know, central time, I mean, we wouldn't be where we are today with LASIK because we wouldn't know how to care for those patients. So thank you so much for that. And also the teaching that you've done to spread safety, like you said, it's integral to all of us and being able to bring LASIK to the masses. Well, thank you. I, I also strongly feel that if I hadn't done that, somebody else would have. So I helped accelerate the move to safety, I certainly didn't make the procedure safe, but I contributed. And for me, that's uh, very, you know, kind of satisfying. I feel like I've given back to our profession. This episode was made possible in part by RxSite. As always, the content and perspective shared in this episode are editorially independent. I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for helping support this editorially independent content, in particular, Alcon, who is a founding level sponsor of the season one of the history of eye care. And that concludes another episode of The History of Eye Care with your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred platform. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episode information and to join in on the conversation.